0: Welcome to KBcast, the podcast for security executives, interviewing people from around the globe on how organizations can operate smarter and stay safer. Here's Carissa Breen with Rachel Greaves from Castle Point Systems. Rachel breaks down the difference between machine learning and artificial intelligence, as many are still confusing the two. We then dove into why incorporating AI into your business, which is hugely advantageous, and that we shouldn't be worried that AI is going to be taking over our world. Or, as Rachel put it, robots like the Terminator will not be taking over. If you'd like to learn a little bit more about AI and ML and how to go about incorporating this into your business, then this episode is for you. So please keep listening. Okay, so Rachel, I know that you and I spoke last year and we've been trying to do a podcast. So I'm really excited to speak to you about artificial intelligence, machine learning, all of the things, because I feel that a lot of people still get that confused and I really want to talk about artificial intelligence and automation because I feel a lot of people don't, they don't really understand it, but they they get concerned when they hear those two words and I thought you're the perfect person to talk to about that. But before we dive into that, we always like to start our podcast off with talking about you and your journey. So can you please walk our listeners through your journey to where you started to where you are now?
1: Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for having me on. So um, my journey is probably not too typical. My start in this career was well outside of the STEM field. So my degree is actually in classics, so Latin and Roman history and anthropology, Um, but the skills are the same. So that kind of learning sets you up for identifying patterns Applying rules, obviously, Latin grammar's pretty renowned for its rules, and also identifying novelty. So, um, you know, the the thesis I wrote was about a novel pattern I identified in a in a certain Latin poet, um, and then that was backed up by research and metrics, essentially evidence based to validate that pattern and determine the causes of it. And those are, of course, exactly the same skills that we use in STEM generally, but in AI and reg tech specifically. So um, I just entered IT just by accident. It was just one of the first kind of full-time roles that was available to me. I think the manager saw the potential of someone with those you know, particular set of skills Um, and started working in kind of management, analysis, and then shifted focus more onto compliance and audit. And I'm now a certified auditor and security manager, privacy systems engineer, and records manager. So that's been the journey to today for me personally.
0: What do you like most out of doing
1: all those things you just listed I think for me it's the problem solving. Mm-hmm. So identifying what the problem really is is the first step to solving it and having evidence available to back that up is really satisfying. Finding solutions to problems that have been really intractable for a long time is very, very rewarding. And that's how we develop the company. So mm-hmm. you know, since since 2012, Gavin McKay and I have been running the company, providing these kind of audit um, compliance services. So. Mm-hmm. You know, we've audited some of the, you know, more catastrophic disasters and information governance um, across government, me from obviously the above the line compliance side and Gav from the platform side. And what we saw consistently was that these projects just never could have succeeded. You know, the problem was clear, but there just wasn't actually a solution to that problem. And that's why we developed our Castle Point technology. Mm.
0: I love when you mentioned before you studied anthropology. I find that really interesting. And I guess, I mean, part of what we're going to get into today very shortly is some of it, I think, will will relate a lot to human behavior. And, and I think you would be able to be the perfect person because you've got that anthropology background. We would talk quite intelligently about AI and how we're moving in a different direction um, in Australia in particular, especially from a jobs point of view. But I'd like to start off with... I want to ask you to explain AI machine learning. Now, a lot of people still get these mixed up. So I want to be really clear before we start talking in these terms that people have the same grounding as that you're about to explain the difference as people still, I feel, get these really, really messed up. So if you could start by just identifying like what the difference is between them as well. Yeah, that is a
1: really key thing to understand. So. I mean, machine learning, ML, is a kind of AI. AI is a very broad term. Obviously, it stands for artificial intelligence. And all AI really means is just machines doing things that humans do. So AI isn't machines thinking the way that people think. It's just machines acting the way that people act so for that to happen, the machine essentially has to follow patterns and replicate the kind of patterns that a human being would follow. And machine learning is just one way that it can learn what those patterns are. So ML is one kind of AI. There's also natural language processing. There's all different kinds of types of artificial intelligence. But I guess the key thing to just point out, um, you know, from a, a humanity versus machine point of view, is that AI is not intended to think for people. It's intended to go through the processes that people go through, relying on the evidence that people rely on. And it should always really be a decision support tool. It's actually against ethical principles for machines to make Discretionary decisions. So the machine is never really going to take over um, the job of a human being, whose job it is to make those decisions on balance. Um, But its job is to really help us make those decisions much faster and with much more evidence.
0: And when you say take over, I think when speaking to people, I mean you would probably get this more than I do. But when soon as you talk about like AI, I think people start to freak out, like we're going to be run by these machines, And, and that's why I really want to bring you on here today to really talk about. How if we adapt to leveraging artificial intelligence correctly, how that can actually add a number of benefits to what we're doing instead of moving away from quite banal and mundane and quite tedious, arduous tasks to actually enhance capability and actually get the best out of our workers. Would you say that most people, that's probably a minority view rather than a majority view, probably because of what media positions out there for for people who aren't in this space like you and I are in, and they have this perception and and a preconceived idea of what that actually then means?
1: Yeah, I think so. So I think um, there's sort of two aspects to it. Firstly, people don't realise that almost everything they interact with day to day has some kind of AI in it. So machines have been doing human tasks for a long, long time and doing them based on data. a long, long time. So almost everything we interact with on the web or in our applications is using some kind of AI. And we're not afraid of that. Um, We're quite comfortable with that. I think people do still tend to think of AI as something very, very technological and incredibly sophisticated and kind of beyond the realm of general human understanding. But it isn't. Like at, at its fundamental level, it's just It's just rules. It's just algorithms, the same kind of algorithms that we apply in our own decision-making. So, yes, people can be concerned about AI. What they're often concerned about is what impact AI will have on their job or on their Mm -hmm. role or their value. Um, But I think people, you know, number one, don't realise that they're already living in an AI-enabled world and, number two, um, the concept of kind of, you know, the Terminator-style AI is so far <laughs> removed from people's reality that they might be concerned about it, but certainly not dedicate too much grey matter to thinking about it.
0: I, I absolutely agree. I think that's people's view that they have, especially when mainstream media start talking about it. But I read—I recently read a book called *Changing Jobs*, and it's written by Jim Chalmers and Mike Quigley, who was the first CEO of MBN, and. The synopsis is about AI and automation and the future of jobs in Australia. And so I'd love to dig into some of the insights of this and hopefully remove, as I mentioned earlier, like preconceived notions, some may have with AI. And so I read this book so quickly, I was, I actually really want to reread it because there's so many good um, insights that were derived from that book, but just studies and research that would, they sort of poured together in this one book. So I really did um, enjoy reading it. And it just gave me a lot of fuel for even our conversation today. So there was, a, there was a study done by Pew Research Center and they interviewed 1900 experts and with the response to a question that asked where by 2025, AI and robotics will have displaced more jobs than they have created. So do you believe that that's correct in the statement they've made?
1: It is a really hard question and it's Mm -hmm. a question for economists, I guess, and there are lots of theories about this. But Mm -hmm. there are a few kind of anecdotal or sort of analogous examples we can look at. So, like, let's think about records managers. And this is sort of close to my heart because I am a records manager and and our product is focused in, you know, one of its aspects is on records management. Records managers have had really sort of diminishing value in their role since around the 90s. So back in the days where we had paper files, we had people whose job it was, you know, manage the records and make sure we're keeping everything the right amount of time. And in the recession in the 90s, those were one of the first areas to go in government especially. And they weren't really repopulated after that so we had a a a cohort of people that were seen as less valuable there were less roles for them people left that industry the academia then didn't keep up so even to this day if you want to be a records manager your degree is essentially going to be in you know archives and library management you know the the sort of institutional side hasn't really kept up with the digital world and because those records managers weren't able to do their job effectively once we moved to a digital kind of model where there weren't paper files to be putting stamps on anymore, Um, they became even less important in the role. And we've ended up in a situation where there might be one, you know, records manager per thousand employees in an organisation. They're not really equipped to do the role. They're not really trained to do the role. There's really a very minimal pipeline of, you know, young blood coming into those roles uh, because there's no pipeline through university to do it and they're not seen as effective because they don't have the tools to be effective. So their job has become almost redundant in some cases and the value of them has really diminished significantly over time. How do we fix that with AI? Well, we we can. So if we think if we think about the way jobs change, let's take those records managers and realize that What they're doing is spending most of their day essentially digging, like they're miners, under the ground. They're down in the dark, not seen by the rest of the organisation, and they have to shift tonnes and tonnes of dirt to find the one useful document that needs to be found for the business. And they spend all of their time digging, and that's not something humans are really designed to do. You know, we're designed to think and express and come up with ideas. We shouldn't really be spending all day underground, out of sight, digging well we can get artificial intelligence to do that digging we can get automation to do the digging and it can be the minor a machine doesn't want accolades it doesn't care if no one sees it or values it necessarily in its role it doesn't get tired it doesn't get decision fatigue it doesn't get trauma from being exposed to you know difficult or sensitive topics um, yes. and it can work 24 7 365 without a break, and what we can do is we can take those records managers and instead of saying, all right, well, this is the end for you then, like the writing's been on the wall for a long time, mm-hmm. and now you're out. Well, actually, we need them now more than ever because that machine is going to bring documents to the surface at a much, much faster rate with much more accuracy than those people miners have ever been able to do, and who is going to take those documents and turn them into valuable insights. What we want to do is take the records managers who are currently miners under the ground, and we're going to turn them and reskill them into being jewellers. Mm. They're going to take the gemstones that the machine digs up for them at a rate of knots, and they're going to craft them into jewellery, like into more valuable, meaningful insights for the organisation, which makes them more important strategically in the business. It means they're providing more value across larger sets of data and they're actually much more pivotal in the organisation than they were before. So, yes, it will displace their role, it will replace their job, but it will give them the opportunity to do a new and better job that's much more aligned with what human beings should be doing, which is higher order thinking.
0: I loved your analogy that you use. And I think that's a really good way of looking at it and an easy way to interpret, because I mean, just how you're explaining things then. And if I look back on, that's just basic evolution though, isn't it? Because I mean, now we're in 2021, why would we be, you know, going around with a horse and cart? And that, I think that's just human nature though. Like we have to evolve and maybe it's because we're, we're entering uncharted waters where We don't know what we don't know yet, but retrospectively looking back on it, it almost looks obvious that we weren't doing the things. So, I mean, maybe you can speak more intelligently because you have um, got that um, amazing background in studying like human beings and the evolution of those. And I'm curious as to, I don't know why people are so afraid of it because- before Google and Facebook, like we had other jobs, but then Google and Facebook have created more jobs for people. So it's just part of mankind that we're evolving as a society and as a world to be able to do better things.
1: Yeah, I mean it is it is true, and there there is a downside, which I guess we can talk about in a minute. But you know, there will always be a role for people. Um, machines shouldn't make discretionary decisions. Humans still need to make decisions. If we let machines make decisions that require discretion, we end up with robo debt, right? So there's always going to be a role for people. Um, so it's very, very important to realise that we will still have people that are key in the end product we just want to replace the um, the process that's, that's requiring those people to do that lower value work. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people are afraid of AI in the same reason they're afraid of genetic modification. We've been doing automation through the industrial revolution for a long time. No one's afraid of the you know, the better mousetrap. They're not afraid of engineering technology getting better all the time. The same way we've been selectively breeding plants and animals for, you know, the right genetic characteristics for a long, long time. And then genetic modification comes along or AI technology comes along and it's a step change. Like it's a, it's a sudden, um, like an exponential increase in the speed at which we can do those things. And that's what's scary. So, I mean, we've been doing genetic modification, you know, forever, and we've been doing automation and robotics forever, but when suddenly we can do it in a big jump with a big mm. advance technology, that is alarming for people. So it hasn't
0: been as incremental as what you're saying. It's just been quite a big shift that people are noticing more.
1: Yeah, that's right, and that is scary. Like, change is scary, and people wonder what is this going to mean for us and for our job? What does it mean? Will machines take over, you know, the sort of... Um, the EQ side of things. Will machines mm. start to be replacing people in in roles where we think it really should be people doing mm, this stuff? Mm-hmm. And, and maybe, yeah, they will. Just before we
0: jump into the EQ side of things, when you're talking before about, you know, the machines looking through the dirt, finding the gems, I mean, you're an employer, I'm an employer. Isn't it obvious that employers, of course, would want machines to do trivial, tedious tasks, pay people to do the thinking side of it that just seems like an obvious answer or maybe we're in this space so i can't see past uh automation uh because i I would just prefer to pay someone to use their brain than doing you know like filing documents or something like that for example like it just to me it seems like more bang for buck if you were to look at it from that perspective
1: it, it does seem like that as an employer. And we have to remember that as employers, we are capitalists, right? So <laughs> the challenge here is that that is a very capitalistic mindset. What? So it's <laughs> yep. okay. Like this is a capitalist society. But what we often forget about in this society is that um, sometimes if the only labour a person can do is menial then that is still the most important thing they can do right so to have value in our society you have to produce labor we, we value people for their labor not for anything else so mm-hmm. you know we, this is a classic story like we don't value parents who stay at home and raise children because they're not participating in the workforce so we don't mm. value them let's take our minors right So let's say we had 10 records managers and 10 of them spend all day long digging through the mine. Well, I can replace all of them with a machine. Do we need 10 people to make jewellery? Probably not. Mm. Maybe we need two. So, yes, we can change people's roles and we can realign them to what people are good at, do the brain work. Um, But can we give everyone that new job? Maybe not. However... Maybe we can redeploy those people as we free up people rather than leaving them outside of the workforce and say, look, you have no value because you're no longer contributing <laughs> to your job. Right. right. Yeah. Maybe we maybe we change the kind of jobs that we have. And maybe what we do is we start to value, hey, wouldn't it be good if human beings can do human stuff, like spend time with the elderly in nursing homes? Or, Mm. you know, go to preschools and provide extra adults for the ratio of kids. Things that at the moment we're not filling because we're trying to push everybody into these standard jobs. So Mm -hmm. I mean this is a big philosophical argument, but but yes, I mean yes you want to redeploy people where their skills are but you can't redeploy them all Mm, unless mm -hmm. you add new and different types of work that is valued in society for them to do
0: so there's a couple of things in there what you said so i find that really interesting Um, i was just i wasn't laughing at you i was just laughing at how you were saying it in terms like your you know your skill (laughs) is no longer valued here um Do you think that, you know, you mentioned that not everyone can be, like, redeployed necessarily because of the nature of what they do and and labor-intensive jobs and skill sets. Do you think that, do you say 10% of people just can't easily be redeployed? Do you think that will force us as a society to think more creatively to actually invent roles for these 10% of people that don't fit in any other redeployment bucket? to then do new types of work? Or do you think that the reason why we're not doing it is because we're lazy or why do you think that is?
1: No, I think the reason we're not doing it is because we still have quite traditional ideas about what is valuable, but we will, by necessity, end up with less humans needed for some of those valuable jobs. And we've seen the same thing throughout the Industrial Revolution, throughout, you know, when the assembly line was developed for building cars and things. You still have people that need jobs. And we have people, more and more people all the time, like the human, um, you know, cohort is growing at such a a huge rate around the world and what we tend not to realize like you and i are sitting here in our offices having a nice chat via the internet but we are a very very tiny privileged minority of people in the world and most of the people in the world are living you know basically on a subsistence basis in poverty so we already have this problem Where we have too many people who aren't contributing in a way we see as valuable. um, And we're gonna keep replacing the work that they do. And there'll be more and more people with nothing to do every day. Unless we want to um, be a society that doesn't care about those people and says, okay, well, if you're not adding value anymore, sorry, you're on the street, like, good luck to you then we either need a, a big kind of social welfare model where we just look after those people regardless or we need to find other work that is seen as valuable. And that mm. work won't be menial work, right, because machines will always be better. Like why pay a person when you, when a machine will do it for free, right? Mm. But we'll have to come up with other ways for those people to spend their time that we count as valuable. So, yes, there'll be, there'll be a cultural shift in what we see as a valuable use of your time um, and it won't be menial work. So in the book
0: it I'm going to I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to jump back. So it discussed that so you've got, you know, three cohorts of people. So you've got your top percentage which you're saying probably like you and I we can do our jobs remotely and and it's fine. Then you've got sort of your middle level cohort of people and your bottom level. What they're then going to say or well, what their predictions were the next 10, 20 years, the people that are operating at the middle cohort will probably fall into the bottom cohort if they don't upskill. And so what they were sort of saying is, now these jobs would probably be in society's eyes would be low value, perhaps, because you can't really automate it. And what it was saying was the non-routine manual jobs that require high level of dexterity, which are fruit picking, like car repairs, furniture, removal, like those types of roles where it would be really hard to get a machine to do it, are unlikely to be replaced by automation. And so do you believe that that is the case? Because... A lot of the insights that it said that the people operating in that middle space, like you were saying, um, uh, like records managers will probably be pushed down into that lower cohort of jobs if they don't upskill. So what's your sort of take on that?
1: Yeah, I, I'd have to disagree. There, there is nothing a human can do manually in terms of dexterity that a machine will not soon be able to do.
0: Right, so okay. Picking,
1: we already have machines that will pick fruit. We have drones now that will pick fruit. Machines can do microsurgery. So there really won't be the thing that will always be in the domain of people will not be things that require manual dexterity. Machines every day are getting better and better than people at that and not just better at manually operating but better at having the intelligence they need to make decisions about what fruit to pick for example so those drones Mm -hmm. tell you which fruit is ripe and which is not they can tell you at a pinpoint level which plant needs fertilizer so that you can go and fertilize just the one that needs it rather than the whole row like that so the ai component of this is getting more and more sophisticated Uh, war and weaponry is all going to be driven by machines and ai very soon so so those kind of manual jobs no they they will all be replaced by machines i'm fairly sure where people can afford those machines and of course Mm. we're still talking about our very western kind of ethnocentric focus here, there'll still be millions of people all over the world that are carrying water, you know, on their heads for hours and hours every day, mm. because we won't give them machines and AI. So this revolution that's going to happen is a revolution that will just further polarise kind of the haves and have nots. We'll mm. get more efficient at extracting value from our own resources, and we won't allow the rest of the world to do that. But that's another that's another issue <laughs> It's probably mm-hmm. too to go into but basically um, people will still need to make the decisions for what the machines should do at the macro level right? right there'll still need to be people going okay well now that we have all this extra data that we didn't have before we can make more strategic decisions about what crops to plant and when Correct. to plant the peaches right but again you don't need a you don't need 100 fruit pickers making those decisions no you, you can reskill one of them to make the decision but what will you do with the other 99 And that's where other roles will come into play. Like why are we understaffing nursing homes so badly? Like why can elderly people essentially be left alone for 21 hours a day in their room staring at the wall? Because we don't value them and we think that it's okay just to have nursing home staff essentially just doing the minimum to look after them but not just spend time and mm-hmm. hold their hand and talk to them like mm-hmm. that is obviously something that a human can do that a machine can't obviously something that is vital and critical for our society and not something that you need a huge amount of skilling in so correct let's send the fruit pickers to the nursing homes
0: correct so let's jump onto the eq side of it as we as you just mentioned so One of the sort of insights from this book talked about EQ like psychologists, for example, will less likely be automated. So do you believe that over time that that will change? Because we just mentioned the fruit picking and all that, depending on where you are situated. Yes, the machines are A, already doing that and B, may do. But do you think because psychologists require a high level of emotional intelligence, you'll get to a stage where that just becomes automated?
1: Hopefully not. I mean, machines will never have true compassion. You can't code compassion, (laughs) necessarily. Um, Also, it would be very hard to train machines in psychology, not just because you need, you know, EQ skills that are hard to code for, but because psychology itself has a massive replication crisis. Like... You can't, all the some of the biggest psychological experiments in the world that have really set the stage for how we see the human brain working, people have tried to replicate those and they can't. They're just not repeatable experiments. So a lot of the, you know, the knowledge that we have about psychology is actually not evidence-based mm-hmm. and machines need evidence. They need to understand rules in order to apply them correctly. So I, I just think psychology is not evidence-based enough. For AI. Um, mm. That said, there's an enormous crisis in this country and around the world with depression, suicide, self harm. So, and again, not enough people to provide those services. If you know anything about Lifeline, you know that people. Can be on hold for a long time. They cannot get through. There's just not enough volunteers to talk to them. Well, I've got another job then for those fruit pickers, you know. So um, the the other, like the flip side though, is that AI might actually act more ethically than a psychologist or a psychiatrist in some cases. Like if you know anything about the history of lobotomies, for example, you know that the guy who invented those basically didn't act ethically. And he lobotomized hundreds of people with no scientific evidence and caused irreparable harm and death to many of them yes. for his own, you know, for his own gratification, his own wealth management purposes. The same with recovered memories. Like we had a spate of this in the 90s where psychiatrists were were, you know, telling people that they were basically planting memories in people and and convincing them that they've been abused as children all of this very very unethical machines won't do that like they won't go rogue like that we have to train them to be ethical but also machines don't have the same motivations as people to do unethical stuff unless it's accidentally coded into the system so but where we do have evidence and algorithms we can use them with ai and i guess this is a great example of where the machine and the people can come together so We've done some work recently on domestic abuse, Mm -hmm. um, and in the particular police jurisdiction we were working with, they already have a set of evidence-based patterns. Like they can say, hey, you're a high-risk perpetrator if we see your behaviour escalating on this type of pattern, and also factors. So you're a high-risk perpetrator if you are a member of a gun club, if you're ex-military, if you're a member of a martial arts club. There's been lots of research into what makes someone a high-risk perpetrator of domestic violence. Well, with AI, we can find all those patterns and, and map them and we can find all those factors across large sets of data and bring them together into a single dashboard for a police officer to look at. So that when you're getting a call out, you've got a dashboard, a decision support tool that's showing you what you would have found out yourself if you had time to log into seven different systems and search for that person seven different times and then plot out the timing and the gap between all the incidents and list out all the factors that were relevant according to these algorithms that you've been trained in. Because people don't have time for that, they're missing a lot of high risk Mm. perpetrators and they're not disrupting the pattern well, let's get AI to apply those kind of rules that are evidence-based to large sets of data so that humans can make the discretionary decision about whether someone is risky or not.
0: What I'm hearing that you're saying in that example that you just used, finding the equilibrium on what sort of the good outweighs the bad.
1: Yeah, correct. And there's a huge there's a whole discipline dedicated to this in terms of ethical AI. So we have to think about the the consequences of everything that we do and what the unintended consequences might be. Mm. And interestingly, AI can help us do that. Like it can help us plot out what could go wrong and lots of things can go wrong. And and every time we introduce a new regulation, for example, it can have really bad unintended consequences. Mm. And part of rules as code, which is the kind of AI that we use, is to map those regulations number one, into machine code so that they can be applied automatically in systems, but also to help kind of forecast, I guess, Mm -hmm. what the impact of those regulations might be. So like the classic example of this, like perverse consequences that can arise from regulation is the the cobra example, if you've heard of that. So um, at a time the government in India decided to put a bounty on cobras. There's lots of cobras in this city. We should get a bounty on them so that people kill them, you know. And the bounty worked really well. It worked too well and people started breeding cobras so that they could come and get the money. And when right. the regulators realised this, they're like, oh, no, people are breeding cobras. We're going to cancel the bounty. Well, what did all these cobra farmers do then? They let them all go. Oh, so my they, God. They ended up with a net increase in the amount of cobras losing the city. So, you know if we can use ai effectively we can we can sort of track those unintended consequences better Mm-hmm. still human beings are the ones who are the creative thinkers. AI will never be creative, right? It's only forecasting things based on data it already knows. So it's not very imaginative. But if people can imagine and AI can give you the data and run all of the combinations for you really quickly, we can start to get better at predicting ways that we might need to change, ways that we might need to regulate.
0: Mhm. No, I understand exactly what you're saying. Um, I think that's a really good way of explaining it as well. The other thing that I was reading and it was only specific to Australia. It was around STEM subjects. So they said there was a decrease, which I think everyone would know, but then it was also even high school students not actually undertaking like advanced mathematics. And that what it was sort of saying is that we'd have a deficit in terms of um qualified people. Would you say that's the case as well?
1: Yeah, there are lots of challenges here, and, and mathematics particularly is going through a little bit of a, a kind of a rebrand. You know, like just just from our own schooling, it was hard to understand why teachers would make you learn all of these times tables in your head when you have a calculator. Mm. Um, and it's the same these days. Like mathematics these days isn't really trying to teach people, you know, the you know the sum of x and y. It's it has to start teaching people things that they can't just google essentially like we have machines to crunch numbers now what mathematics really is about is understanding understanding impacts so okay well if we have this and we have that, what impact will that have? And that's something that requires creativity. So I think mathematics and STEM in general, yes, you still need to learn your hard skills, but the focus is shifting a little bit more to the soft skills, the, yeah. the identifying novelty, understanding patterns, thinking through implications, because mathematics is only useful to us in the, in the impacts that it can have. Like if we can increase the yield of the peach crop, well, that takes mathematics, right? But you don't need to learn what all the combinations of numbers are. You don't need to learn pi to the 50th decimal. What you do need to learn is how would I apply algorithms to to come up with this mm. decision, to make the prediction? And that's something that, yes, you can learn in a mathematics degree if they start teaching that kind of creative thinking, but you can also learn it in an arts degree. You can learn it in any kind of degree or higher education or, you know, schooling um, that that encourages you to look at data and identify patterns and come up with creative insights. Mm.
0: I really love the way you explain that as well because I think that I used to ask the exact same question um, when I was in high school and I think one of the things they sort of said was sort of teaching students, one, they said they don't have enough qualified like mathematical teachers was one of their insights from memory and then the second thing was they're going to start teaching students like computational thinking like coupled with like mathematics that's um, which i think exactly what you were sort of just explaining there so i think that that would be a better way of looking at it and i think it's just it's just really interesting to see because it just really concerns me as like where do you think this will leave us as a society if more menial tasks are automated and we're talking about you know even the fruit picking like it's basically gone if you're in sort of more privileged countries but like where is that going to leave us like wh- what are your what are your thoughts on this and, and and should people be
1: worried yeah people should be worried but they shouldn't be worried about the machines they should be worried about the systems of government you know you can't you can never explain to someone why they should care about other people they either do or they don't, right? Mm-hmm. But if we, if we, everyone has a different motivation. Some of us have an inherent motivation to care about other people and some people need an extrinsic motivation. But that extrinsic motivation is going to be we have an increasing number of homeless people, we have an increasing burden on the public health system, you know, we have um, increasing crime rates. Why? Because people aren't occupied, they're not utilised and they're not seen as having value. Um, mm. and, but what what we have to realise is that we will not have enough traditional jobs, in quotes, to occupy all those people. Our population grows and grows all the time. The number of jobs will not grow. The jobs will change, but the number of positions will probably shrink, especially for the more menial jobs because machines will take over. So unless we're happy to let those people fall out the bottom of the sieve and just be left without any safety net, we have to find new jobs in quotation marks. And Mm. it will be more fruit picking, right? It'll be where can we deploy people? Like think about Mm. all the things that we're not doing. The US has an enormous issue with rape tests. Like the rape kits aren't being tested. They've got warehouses and warehouses of rape kits because no one has time to get through them all. Well, it shouldn't be too hard to upskill enough people to use those, again, machines that do the DNA testing to process all of those. So why aren't we deploying people where we have gaps and where we need them? Because it's not profitable or there's not enough of an incentive to do it. So I think unless we have kind of a change from the top that says, okay, well, we know we're gonna have more and more people who need to provide value. We need to change our definition of value, number one, Yeah, Spending time with the elderly is value. Mm -hmm. Raising children is value, you know, looking after the environment outside is value, but we need to, you know, put some structures around that as well so that everyone can contribute and everyone can feel valued and everyone can then in return be looked after. This is a global podcast, but just speaking more specifically in
0: Australia, would you say government is looking at this in terms of, well, we may have a big surplus of people, like you said, falling at the bottom of the sieve that are just left there homeless, have, you know, they don't have any credentials or skill set to get a a, a very low-level job. Um, Do you think that that's concerning them? And if if that's the case, are they doing anything about
1: it? I think they are. So... Mm. Obviously, yeah, I have an anthropology degree, history degree, so I know kind of essentially how culture works and how um, society has changed over time. But political science is a mystery to me and to probably most of us. So I think we understand the broad swings of it and we can see and what it looks like from the outside is not a political animal, is we have maybe a left side of politics that is is focused on kind of what do we do with these people and make sure everyone is looked after and has value and we have a right side that is seen to be more focused on, you know, the the commerce and the the industry and saying, well, how do I make sure my industries have enough people to support them? And what I think we need is the two to meet in the middle mm, and say, agree. okay, yep, we live in a society that's focused on a capitalist outcome and output. We're not going to change that in a hurry, um, so how do we make sure that we are supporting those industries in the best way? But I don't think until there is an impact on industry that we're mm-hmm. gonna start thinking about from the right, we're gonna think about how can I utilize these people from the left, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that started to happen, like with the borders closing for the pandemic and everything, industries like universities um and tourism have seen enormous impacts. And the right, I think, is starting to think, well, how can we shore up these industries with domestic workers where we can't get them from internationally anymore? How do we look at our own populace now and see how we can fit them back into this model? So it's different motivations, but essentially we all want everyone to be looked after. No one wants to see people fall through the cracks Um, and we might have different incentives and motivations for looking after those people, but at the end of the day, if we don't look after them, we're not going to be a sustainable society.
0: Mm, No, I absolutely agree with you. So in light of us sort of talking quite at length about automation, which I've loved, um, I'd like to just get your thoughts on, because there's an increase in artificial intelligence, automation, you know, most roles nowadays, um, or every company's, Basically, a tech company, and a lot of those skill sets are uh, technology based. What about sort of the increase around security? And as we traverse more into this automated society, do you think that security is something that not, we're not really considering? And do you think that we've um, we've thought about it intelligently on how to support what we're doing in terms of the automation moving forward?
1: yeah i mean people are concerned about it people do think about it a lot but more people um, are more interested in the benefits than the risks and this is human nature right so we tend not to um even though we are kind of risk averse humanity generally like we'd rather avoid losing something than we want to gain something equivalent you know we hate losing out Um, we're also really bad at seeing very far forward on the planning horizon. Like, so when we say things like, you know, if you take nudes, they could be leaked. What we think of is, yeah, they could be, but that probably won't happen to me. Right. And I can't wow. really imagine in my mind all the impacts of that. Like I can't put myself into future me's position and really understand and feel how that would feel. But right now I really want to send this to this guy because that's my motivation right now. So I'm gonna to put to the back of my mind what could happen. So we tend to do things that are inherently risky because we do a quick way up in our mind of risk versus benefit and like almost always selfishly we're going to tip to benefit, right? Mm -hmm. But I want this right now. Like we're such instant gratification type people. Um, And then you have people like me come along who are security analysts and auditors and we tell people, (laughs) hey, like (laughs) the likelihood of this thing might be very low but the impact would be catastrophic. Therefore, Mm -hmm. I think the risk is high. But it's still very hard to get people to think through that lens. People think about risk in terms of likelihood. So when we're looking at AI, some people like me and maybe like you are thinking about the impacts and going, well, that would be an unacceptable impact. Therefore, the risk is too high for me. No, thank you. But most people you'll find are thinking about likelihood. They just consider risk in terms of likelihood. And if the likelihood seems really low, they're just going to go ahead and not even think about the impact. So are we ready for an AI world? We'll never be ready. Like we'll never be good enough as human beings at thinking about security to plan far ahead enough for it. So we'll continue to encode vulnerabilities into our systems. We'll continue to take risks that we on balance shouldn't be taking um, because we 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 like taking risks. We like getting our benefits and we don't think the bad thing is actually gonna happen. Um, We'll never be able to protect everything from a technology point of view. Like something like 30% of vulnerabilities are zero day. Like there's Mm. no patch for them, you know. Mm. Like the bad guys will get in. And just as AI is really good at helping people do mundane work, well, what's some of the most mundane work you know? Hacking. Mm. (laughs) That's Mm. tedious, right? Takes a long Mm. time. Traversing. Correct. Exfiltrating data. Parsing it all, like that's super mundane. And I guarantee you, there is AI for that. We've seen it. So, just as AI is going to help you, it's also going to help the bad actors as well. So, Mm. you know, really all we can do is recognize that we need strong regulation, we need zero trust models, we need to do everything we can to bake in security. Um, But the most important thing we can do is just reduce the threat surface. Like, we just have to assume that we'll be breached and that AI will be helping people breach us and that our own AI systems will be making us vulnerable to being breached. That's just a fact. So what we have to do, if we can't reduce the likelihood down to negligible, we have to reduce the impact. And the only way to do that is to not have the data that would cause a catastrophic impact if it was released. So, you know, and that's that's why we built our system so that we could tell people, look, you have terabytes and terabytes of data. There's no way you as a human being can understand everything in here that's risky, everything in here that's valuable, and also everything that you're not allowed to dispose of yet under law. So Mm. how about we find all the risky stuff for you and we use regulatory code to determine whether you can just get rid of it. And here is a list, good news. I found all the sensitive stuff. You legally do not need to keep it. And, you know, if we don't do this, we end up with a situation like Australian National University in 2018. You know, the the systems there accrued years and years and years and years' worth of student data, including mine, and when that network was penetrated, that threat actor took all of that data. Mm. So now that foreign government has my tax file number, uh, but I graduated 15 years ago and my record should have been destroyed after seven
0: Mm.
1: We're not finding the risky stuff that we have and we're not working out how long we have to keep it. We're never working out when we can get rid of it and we just keep it. So our threat surface grows and grows and grows every day. That's really where AI can help to understand what we have and help us understand our risk so that we can make better decisions about what to do about it. Do you think people are sort of thinking
0: some of the points you just raised just then around the security side of things and about AI and how we're growing and evolving won't be able to catch up do you think people are thinking on this level or is it only just people like you and I that are already in this space it makes sense to us why we would care but people outside of our space probably don't really care
1: I think yeah I think they are and I think what we need to do is make the AI conversation more accessible to other types of thinker So we have lots of political thinkers around the world, lots of social thinkers, lots of people focused on health and rule of law and justice and environment. These are the people who are having the big thoughts about catastrophic impacts on our society, on our planet, on individual people. Mm -hmm. And if we can make the conversation about AI and automation accessible to those people, then their insights and the value they can provide can help us shape better technology. Until we integrate technology and humanities essentially back together, we're having two separate conversations in two different rooms. So I think it's gonna be really, really key to try to cross, you know, hands across the water and get technology people talking to economists and psychologists and anthropologists and get those people, politicians and healthcare administrators, talking to technology teams as well. It's only by working together that we can design technology to support human beings, you know? We can't just design technology for technology's sake and we can't continue to support human beings without leveraging technology.
0: I love that, I love that. Well, Rachel, I've absolutely loved our chat. Uh, You've definitely blown me away with some of your answers and just how um, in-depth you went and how intelligent um, you spoke about things. So I really appreciate that. Absolutely loved the conversation. If people perhaps have a question that I didn't ask you today, how can they go about reaching out to you?
1: Yeah, of course. So you can find me on LinkedIn, Rachel Greaves on LinkedIn, and you can email me, it's just info. At castlepoint.systems. You can get me there.
0: Awesome. Well, Rachel, I really appreciate your time. No worries. Thanks, Carissa. Really nice to talk to you. Thanks for tuning in to KB Cast, the cybersecurity podcast for executives. We always value your support and would love it if you could leave us a review or a comment on your platform of choice iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And that's always appreciated. Till next time.